The Everything Sequel Podcast is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and Tua T Fitness. The Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language. Because we learned it from you, Dad. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the 2010 edition. My name is Michael Schantz. I'm from the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, of course, my co-host, your friend, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Hit me, Tom. Have you heard the one about the marathon runner and the chicken? (laughs) Very nice. Shida has some lines in this movie. Scheider's fucking great. I was but not, not yet, prepared Tom. for that. I really wasn't. <laughs> How could you not be prepared? Be- well, because because my you know I, I was thinking about two thousand and one, a space odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> that was your mistake. Yeah, yeah I, 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 you know, that wins the visual game hands down. This movie wins the dialogue. <laughs> Very good then. Well, Tom, the only reason we are doing. 2010, the year we make contact, is because we have a special guest. Ladies and gentlemen, we are being joined for this movie by Pete the Retailer. You might know him from Star Wars Minute. Hello, Pete. Hello. I feel pressured now that this is the only reason why you're doing this. I'm like, uh oh. Oh, no. I feel like I I forced you guys into something. Yeah, but I was so happily (laughs) and surprised by. Because I believe, Tom, you you offered, you said, what movie would you like to do, yeah. right? Yeah. And no. Pete, you came back with 2010, and it's up I'll there. speak for Tom. I was excited. The second I heard that, <laughs> I was so excited. What made you, well, it's, you know, what made you want to do this movie? It's a, you know, 2001 is is... What I often say is my favorite movie, my favorite film, let's say, of all time. You know, <laughs> Star Wars, obviously, the, the amount of time that I've spent talking about it, and it's it's more of a cultural phenomenon that I'm engaged with. That, um, And I do love, you know, the, the original movie, Star Wars, very much. But I will often just say for, for um, you know, maybe it's my little, my little tiny internal film snob saying, like, well, 2001 is obviously a superior mm-hmm. film. You know, it's like... Um, so I will often say that that's my favorite film, but um, so to have you know a completely different landscape, whereas you know, as as I'm well aware, Star Wars is uh, you know sequeled out the wazoo at this point, and so to to have this weird kind of one-off yeah. follow-up sequel to 2000, 2001, which is just you know. Um, alternate reality of you know like almost what could have been. Uh, you know, if, if things were reversed, maybe I'd be sitting here be like, did you know they made a sequel to Star Wars? And we're talking about it right now. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, I, I, I've always had a, a certain, I don't know, it's a weird fondness and also at the same time distaste for this movie. <laughs> but I, um, but it's always, I, I'm, I definitely... It's warm to me. It's, it's I've got good feelings about it overall, yeah. even though I know that there's a lot of things that are just like, ah, really? That's funny you say that because I've always fucking loved this movie. I just do. I connected with this movie as a kid. 
Well, sure. Yeah, I, I, as a kid, very much so. And then I, I, I again, this that that stupid adult brain popped in at some point in my twenties where I had to be like, you know, like, oh no, I'm I'm cool and I know things, and therefore this movie is bad. And it fought that initial love a little bit, but I've I've come back around, in which I I I really do love this movie, but also. I understand that there's a lot of things that it's not, you know, you you have to kind of, as I'm sure we'll get into, you really have to kind of disconnect it from 2001. Well, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you said that, that your adult brain popped in and my first thought was not me. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I, just to complete the, the, this, this fascinating triptych of opinions. Um, well, I don't know if mine is as fascinating, but um I mean, we, we've talked on this podcast before, especially with regards to Sylvester Stallone. I'm a grown man baby. Like, I, 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 I saw too many art movies as a young man. <laughs> and, you know, as I'm growing older, I'm, I'm seeing the things that most people see and appreciate as teenagers. Um, yeah. And enjoying them immensely. And uh, I'd never seen this movie before. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And I, that was one of my questions for you, actually. Ne- never seen it before. Uh, it, it, Pete, just so you know, we're dealing with a man who would go and see another stakeout in the theater, having never seen stakeout at all. <laughs> and still have yeah. not seen stakeout. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, it, despite the, the best um, intentions of Amazon Prime Video to make me. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... This, this, but this just felt like it had been missing from my life, quite frankly. I mean, there's like it's sort of <laughs> one of two or three movies we've done on this podcast, uh, with like Prisoner of Azkaban and and the Final Destination series, where I I feel like I was really missing out, and you know, for 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 the interests of the of the podcasts as well, I I thought, well, finally, here's a good example of a movie that gets the balance between original and uh sequel you know how far do you move away from the original and go in your own direction and and how far do you um, how do you do you stay latched you know how much do you stay latched onto the original i mean that's literally happening in this movie they latch themselves onto the original movie in a physical sense right (laughs) which was a great visual for me i thought yeah that's that's what sequels are doing but to pete's (laughs) point I, you know, what's interesting to me about this movie is that, yeah, the movie, I mean, you know, it's an 80s movie, first of all. And, yeah, the movie might have problems. But to me, I think the easiest way to not call this movie a good movie is only in its relation to 2001. Yeah. If you separate it from 2001, right. to me, it's very hard to call it a bad movie. Yeah, I, I don't think i would ever call it a bad movie and not even in my um you know my my elitist <laughs> right uh heyday you know i would never be like oh that's terrible i was just like yeah you know it, it's definitely it's a lot more a product of its time oh, yes. certainly you know it's very much and a product kind of, of its the, director right yeah yeah it's a really interesting kind of like i wouldn't have like coming back to it for this, I, I, I'm I'm happy we, we uh, got to address it because I, I learned a whole bunch of new things about it that have increased my appreciation. I didn't realize how much of a kind of auteur mm-hmm. project this was. I just assumed it was a, a, you know, 
oh, it's a Hollywood cash grab, you know, that kind of a thing. And it's just, you know, filmed by committee. But no, no. Yeah, it's, right. It's, um, you know, Hayam's at the yes. wazoo. And uh, <laughs> it, it like he even, you know, shot at himself. Like it's like everything uh, very much his movie. Although I and I think like I, I really want it to be a little bit more his movie because I feel like the times where it falters is when it kind of asks to be compared to 2001 that's the problem you know mm-hmm. it's a, um you know comparing like like it's not as drastic you know I, I don't think the first alien movie is on a artistic it's a great movie i love it i don't necessarily think it's on an artistic par with 2001 sure. per se it's great but but then the choice to go, you know, for aliens to make it as far yeah. enough away from alien that you're not always making that comparison. And it's apt, this, though. I think for the most yeah. part. Yeah. For the most part, you're, you know, the more that it deals with the, like, the, you know, the, the kind of glasnost, you know, Russian and American crews, you know, and they're, right. they're exploring, figuring out what happens to the discovery yeah. is great. And then once you do things like, there's a few exceptions, but like most of the problems come from like, oh, I'm literally walking into a set <laughs> yes. that we had to yes. recreate because Kubrick smashed them all so that we wouldn't do right. this. Yeah, there, there um, was, you know, but we're doing this and we're we're walking into this same set and then it's like, oh yeah, but now it's, I get it, You're right? It, it's reminding me of this other movie. I was I half read. expecting to see Kubrick there with his camera necklace in some of this, <laughs> some of the <laughs> yeah. shots. I I thought that would be a great touch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, as and and you know. And uh, maybe they could update Hal for the '80s with a mullet and jean shorts and medallions. <laughs> right. Well, for those that don't know, we've been talking a while, but we are talking about 2010, the year we make contact, the 1984 movie directed by Peter Hyams, uh, who you know even if you don't know, he's done movies like Outland, which this movie feels a lot like, uh, The Star Chamber. A movie I love, Running Scared. That's one of my all-time kid favorite movies. The Presidio, Narrow Margin. Presidio. Time Cop. Yeah, Sudden Death and The Relic. Mm. Didn't he also do Stay Tuned? Mm. I think... He may have... Did he did he write Stay Tuned? Or am I... Oh, I'd have to look it up. Okay. Oh, I don't know, yeah. I, I think you might be right. This movie had a budget of $28 billion. <laughs> Shows where my weekend, level's at, doesn't it? Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> an opening weekend of $7.3 million. In the USA and the world, $40.4 million. So, you know, wow. not a hit, but, but you know, made money. It's a modest hit. Yeah. Uh, he, he, did, he did direct and write uh, DP. Okay. Stay tuned. He didn't write it, but he, he was the director and the and the cinematographer. Oh, I thought okay, yeah. So yes, good. good <laughs> Stay tuned. Another, I saw that in the theater. Me too. too. Yes. Nice. I I that's a that's another formative. We've just done the Naked Gun series, Pete, and and so we're going mm. through a lot of, not with this movie, but a lot of formative, cinematic memories for me and Highlander too, <sighs> which is a a, a formative, oh, wow. cinematic memory for Mike. I'll say. <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen any of the Highlanders in the theaters, but the the uh, Naked Gun, I definitely like. The first one, I don't. I, I it was more of a buzz movie that then like that. But then when the second one came out, I definitely saw that, and I was like, oh, all in. And then when the third one came out, I it it was 
I believe it might have been my freshman year of college or there's something where I was, you know, more more independent and out and about. And I went to go see it opening weekend and I was like, yeah, that was all right. And then somehow like a group of friends were going to see it again the next night and dragged me along and seeing it that (laughs) rapidly in succession. Like it was just it made me it could just give me a horrible taste in my mouth. And I was like, I don't. Let me walk yeah. away from this for a long time. <laughs> Go, going back to it after, you know, going back to in 2021, uh, talk about bad taste in the mouth. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. not, that's not an easy watch. <laughs> Anything involving OJ Simpson, you go, Jesus, fuck. Well, yeah. How do we all feel about Which, the have... title? The, uh, the subtitle? The... I think this yeah. is interesting because is that the full title? It's not in the credits. It's not at the beginning of this movie or at the end of the movie. The movie's just labeled as 2010. But everywhere else you see it, it's 2010, the year we make contact. <laughs> Based on the book, of course. Huh. Right. Now, and there are the, the four book is... books in the series, if memory recalls. There's 2061 and 3001 as well. Oh, right. He wrote a fourth one. Yeah. Um, the book is just called Odyssey Two, yeah. right? It's not. It doesn't have any kind of. It's like yeah, two thousand ten Odyssey Two, right? I, well, I, 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 I think that's right. It, well, the, I mean, the subtitle is interesting for the reason Mike just laid out. Also, just the the peasant present and past tense problems that watching this in two thousand twenty one has because <laughs> right, right. That was the right. year. Should we be? Should we change that to the year we made contact? I. <laughs> <laughs> or and does to... anyone really yeah. make contact in this movie? So there's a lot of levels on which this title is problematic. Yeah, is working think, and not I think working. We need a future. <laughs> yeah, we need a future. That's right. Or something. Yeah. The year we will made have contact. made contact. Right. <laughs> you know, when you've gone that far and you've done the colon, I mean, why stop there? <laughs> as as we found in, uh, in right. previous episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Well, would either one of you be surprised to find out? I don't know if you knew this, but this movie garnered five Oscar nominations as opposed to the first movie, which only had four. <laughs> I find that rather incredible. It's I, they're, uh, they're mostly technical. Yeah, they're all sort of the they're... suspects you think they would be. Art direction, yeah. costume, sound, effects, makeup. Yeah. Uh, those... those... <laughs> the genre slums of the Oscars, right. uh, which, I, which most of the stuff I'm more interested in lives there. So it's you know, um, yeah. I, I also um, that is, I, that is mildly surprising. I for what was the original nominated for? I feel like I I'd have to look it up. I mean, best director. I don't know that it was best writing, but uh... yeah. Um, I I did know that this got. Um, this won the the Hugo Award that mm. year, and I was like, "Well, what was it up against?" I can't remember, and I looked it up. It won the Hugo for like best dramatic presentation. It beat um, Dune, which oh wow, that's I, I can I understand <laughs> that even though my heart might right, not agree, right, I understand right. it. Um, Star Trek Three, okay, yeah, the, the Search for Spock, Last Starfighter, <laughs> and and Ghostbusters, which is interesting <laughs> that it, it's like. I can understand a, a sci-fi crowd saying like mm, Ghostbusters. No, it's not really sci-fi, but like uh, I don't know. There's certain. Is that just the Arthur C. Clarke of it all? Do you think? I think it could be. It's the the 
the names behind it and the concept behind it. And, and, and you know, like we said, it, it, as a as a purely kind of you know, again, looking at it on its own, I think you know, I I think Dune and Star Trek Three, as much as I love them, aren't as good as a, of a movie as this is. Um, you can make arguments for Last Starfighter and Ghostbusters, but I I feel like I can see why uh, a um, you know a group of sci-fi writers in 1985, yeah. 84, 85 would be would would vote that way. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. I really like the screenplay of this movie. I think this movie. Well, yes. I mean, I I like the screenplay, and one thing that struck me because by the way, I watched this twice in like two days. Oh, good. And one thing that struck me was if if you had asked me how long this movie was after I was finished watching it, I would have said 90 minutes, but it's just under two. Yeah. yeah. I think this movie is amazingly paced. Yeah. I mean, it, you know. Yeah. It's efficient. It, it, and it um, does not at all feel long. I had a, a brief moment near the beginning where I was I think because I was just settling down to do stuff my wife had just put the kids to bed and came back in and I was like oh yeah I'm just starting this do you want to you know I can kind of bring you up to speed I haven't done that much and uh, then having that little kind of pause in there then getting back into you know the swing of things I started to the the kind of uh, melodrama of of you know when he announces to mm. his wife hey i'm going on the mission and she's you know smashing the plates and all this other stuff um as soon as that gets too much to me there it's not all i love the the shot of him jogging yes his son going yeah down the hill. i love that's that very, shot that's too a very uh, you know it's like half it, weirdly it's like uh um you know what ai should have yeah. been because it's like parts part kubrick and part spielberg <laughs> you know the, the, that's um, another part of this movie i really like is the vision of the future it doesn't yeah. go too far into the future like other future movies do. It feels more, you know. Yeah. Well, it's very natural. Kind of, you know, Arthur C. Yeah. Clarke, where he's just extrapolating on things that mm-hmm. we have to a certain extent. Um, but then, like a little bit of that melodrama started to get. I'm like, all right, we don't need another scene of them talking. And then, like, literally in the middle of me thinking that, it's like, bang, space. I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> gotcha. <Right. laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> Thanks. Up there, whoever heard me in the projection booth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny you say that, but uh, you know, there are there are plenty of things that's I I in fact we haven't really talked yet about because that front scene between Schneider and uh, Dana Elker. Oh my god, I have so many things to I say about that. Fucking love it. Well, go ahead, Tom. Well, I I must have been in an alliterative <laughs> mood because I wrote shouting over satellites with Schneider in shorts and shades. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, we, I, um, I mean, this comes after a, a, um, a, a recap montage of the first movie, which is normally something I'm, I'm principally against. But believe it or not, I actually really liked what they did there because, you know, it's it's science fiction, so you just turn the first movie into a database, and it it kind of. Right. W- works fantastic well, and not just that but they come up with a narrative reason the the russian just finished reading that report yeah right, right. exactly you know? so it all feels plausible and, and integrated and then uh, and i just love the fact that you know i i think one of the things we could probably talk about is like you know is this movie 
is this movie for the people who didn't understand 2001? Uh, because <laughs> right, I, I, there must have been a sigh of relief that went over the, the you know the people in the audience who who found 2001 too pretentious or did, didn't get it or, or or you know were worried they were missing something when you know the response the you know the information at the end of every uh, every bit of detail is unknown 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 okay, we yeah. it's like yeah. it must have been like oh great i just like i didn't miss something this 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 movie really didn't answer any questions well i think 2001's <laughs> a little divisive in that way i'm with you pete i love 2001 Me too. but i know that there are people in the world who just think you know get off your high horse and just tell me you know it it's too right. impressionistic i think for some people it's such a visual movie yeah, that movie's two and a half hours long, and there's only forty minutes of dialogue. I think so. For some mm. people, I think that's maddening. Where um, they want to be led down a, a narrative that they don't get, but, but it, especially I'm, by right. the end. And this movie is just all narrative. So they, <laughs> well, where, to your point, Tom, well, they're, yeah. they're just you know pigs and shit for this movie. But it does, it does, and then you know the the satellite scene does exposition extraordinarily well. You know to to have to have them shouting the exposition at each other with right. one person up in a satellite yeah. and the other one down on the ground, uh, and the fact that it's very high stakes. You know, at the end of the scene, I I made a note saying. Did they just end the Cold War in that one scene? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and it's very funny and it's full of great character notes. You know, the, there's mm-hmm. a certain quirkiness and absurdity to the fact that they're having this uh, secret meeting. Um, yeah, it reminded me of the Larry Sanders shows. You know, are you going to have any more secret meetings today, Mr. Sanders? <laughs> right. you know, it's like they're doing it, screaming at each other. Um and the actors are fantastic. I I just thought, well, this is how all exposition scenes should be, like something interesting to look at, good dialogue, and there's <laughs> high stakes. I thought you meant they should all be in, you know, at a sat- satellite. I'd be fine with that. Maybe yeah. the rest of the, the rest of the mainstream cinema audience wouldn't. I'd be fine with that. I also love the fact that it's such an '80s projection of what a chancellor of a university looks like. <laughs> in shorts and shorts in the shades looks like magnum pi right right um sans mustache you know it, it, it we the the movie the movies and movie and franchises this make me think of interestingly you know ones we've already mentioned aliens also you know star trek the next generation in the sense of uh well i suppose it's late 80s 90s but projecting that into the future like when I saw Roy Scheider and Shorts and Shades, I thought we're um, we're really are you know we're just like we're extrapolating <laughs> from where we are now in in style as well as uh, technology. Right. Interesting. Uh, it's great, and we're still fighting the Cold War, which I thought was fascinating. Right. Yeah. Of all the things to not survive, to not be a, an accurate prediction, it's good that that was one of them. <laughs> like, you know. Right. It's like, you know, Pan Am, yeah. but like... The <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, because this we, movie you know. calls some shots, and so many of them, get, they get wrong. But I don't know if you noticed that um, they called the Beijing Olympics in 08. There's a poster <laughs> I, on his kid's wall that. that says Beijing 08. 
and that that it, it's a good uh, you know weird swings to take that that's a good you know I, and I guess at the time that would be unusual for being you know yeah in the 80s we weren't at, you know we weren't as much of a uh we didn't interact with China as much as we, I mean, we did maybe on a bigger level, but I feel like now kind of the world stage has a lot more China in it than it did in 1984, yeah. let's say. Right. Um, so for it to be the, not that the Olympics only goes to major players in the world, but right. uh, but it's a good good call. Yeah, I, I, th- I thought I had some of those feelings about the when they send the probe down, how much it looks like a modern day drone. Uh, thinking mm-hmm. is that a chicken and egg situation? I mean, you know, we we know from from Star Wars and Star Trek that people in science and technology do look to precedents set by certain movies yeah. and certain TV shows. So I I was kind of wondering, um, and I love that they they almost got it right with the the laptop on the beach, like because yeah, right. at this point you couldn't foresee the smartphone trend. But they got the basic idea that you would have this mobile everything machine that you would take with you, where even to like places like the beach, they just couldn't see it as a phone. Yeah. Right. But it was still was great. so close. You start taking this little IBM printer almost to the beach. It's great. All right. Well, we're off to a great start. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll uh, dive deeper into 2010. Sound good, gentlemen? It certainly sure. does. Let's All make right. contact. <laughs> right after this. I like to think I know something about beer. But nowadays, even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day, you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need. The Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, the three of us. Tom, Pete, and I, we're here talking about 2010, The Year We Make Contact, directed by Peter Hyams. All right, gentlemen. So narratively, we're, we just got done with our satellite talk. And as you described, Pete, now, you know, we have some, some sort of on-Earth stuff to kind of take care of, and then we're in space. If uh, before I, Not to clunk up the show, but to step back into the satellite stuff for a second, that's the most yeah. kind of... 
I feel like that's for for good and bad. That's immediately letting you know that this isn't Kubrick because it's like the raw materials. Yeah. It could very well be a very Kubrick kind of shot like that. What he would have <laughs> done with that row of satellites and all this other stuff. And then, right. But instead, you have this very completely different style of you know a lot of yeah. you know uh, you know close up on them as they're talking and and you know not you're not getting this kind of vista of this long row of satellites you're just getting you know people are kind of obscured by the railings half the day it's just like oh this right. isn't this is different this is not um, this is a different art here that i'm looking at okay like it, it's a good kind of dip into like you know yeah. transition well, did you did either one of you ever think about that while you're watching this movie did you think I wonder what Kubrick would have done with this. All the time. Right? All the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but it was always, you know, I, I was always impressed, I think, that they were they were able to, that the direction was able, and the cinematography was always able to define itself as, in its own way, just as spectacular, but just, you know, a different directorial take on that. Like, everything, it, like, the shots feel more prosaic, but, I mean, like, that... The, the shots of the, the you know the shots of the satellite the shots of the white house you know the 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 um those long deep wide takes right and compositions mm-hmm. uh are very impressive um they just I, I there's something about this this movie it just feels a little more prosaic like factual <laughs> for want of a better word that right. it's 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 you know it's it's boiling boiling it down to the bones of filmmaking in some ways uh which partly i think is about distinguishing from kubrick's style i noticed later on that there's a there's a sort of half-hearted attempt at a sort of a jump cut when you go into space it's like it's like a hard cut that doesn't match right Right. And I thought uh-huh. that was very, that was a nice moment of like we're not gonna do the jump cut, but we're gonna do the the kind of, we're gonna boil it down to essence of it. It's a hard cut. It's fine. Right. It'll it'll do. <laughs> There's um, no slow motion bone up in the air, but we are hard cutting right. to space. Right. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I I thought about that a lot, but you know, I I, I was I was always happy that it was it was uh, defining itself. Um, within its own style. Well, and as I understand it, because I know that the director, you know, Peter Hyams, one of the first things he did was say, like, are you okay with this, Stanley? Like, like, do you ever want to do it? And he said, no, I don't want anything to do with like a sequel, you know, do your movie and do whatever you want, which must have been a nice message to get back too, you know? Well, yeah, I, I... I think that that's the important bit is, you know, make your own movie, which I right. I, I think is. Which he absolutely large, did. Yeah, largely he did. I think that, again, like the, the times, I think it, when it doesn't, when it spends too much time in the shadow of 2001 is when the, the times where it falters a little bit. And I think that's, you know, absolutely the when it succeeds is when he was doing that. And I, I, mm. um, I like that. And I like the. Um, where I I want to find a, I'm sure that's I'm sure that might be an accurate story, and I've read that, and I I want to find the source on that that it's mm-hmm. not just you know, Peter Hyams being like yeah I talked to him he said go make your own movie and it's like you know in retro like really because it literally he had us like you know burn the house down so nobody would do this like yeah that's right and and 
I mean, I guess well, maybe it's just she didn't want somebody making, you know, wallowing in the same stuff. And maybe when, you know, that was part of it, you know, all right, go make your own movie. Like, he probably he just had to hear the name and think, I'm safe. Go ahead. Do your own <laughs> whatever <laughs> <Yeah>. you want. <laughs> and I and, and be, just being like, I, I think the things would be like, don't make don't try to recreate exactly yeah. what I did. And so that, that again, that's not to not to harp on it, but it's like, all right, I think maybe take that into heart more and don't re it's hard with, with you when you're trying to accurately kind of, you know, adapt the, the source material for film too. Cause that's all, you know, Arthur C. Clarke is also, you know, you're, you're basing it on his story and he's just as much yeah. a collaborator in the, in, you know, at least the narrative, um, you know, yeah, he's actually feeding. Uh, he's actually feeding pigeons in that in front of the White That's House. That's right. Scene. In the yeah, and and I think you know the way that and he the, and Kubrick are actually on the cover of Time magazine as like the president and the premier. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah I think it def defines itself in the in the early part of the film stylistically against two thousand and one, but also. Also, I thought it was trying to generically define itself as something other than science fiction. Like, it it sort of starts as a kind of Cold War espionage thriller, almost. Mm -hmm. And with weird touches of horror, like the, the you know, the, the distorted Dave Bowman line. Right. Which ties uh -huh. the movie together. Uh, when that came in... Um, you know, I was like, what, what, what is, what is this movie? What is, what is Dave turned into? <laughs> um, and to have that spy narrative cold war, um, run through until they get into space. I, I thought it was, it was doing a lot of very interesting things. And then it sort of becomes, has a, the voiceover stuff has a noirish feel as well. So I think, I think it's playing with a lot, uh, a lot more generically. Yeah. Is the sense I got. Here's a question for both of you. Do you think this movie works better for people of a certain age, meaning us, <laughs> because because we lived through the Cold War? I mean, if you were younger and have no kind of frame of reference for that or the fear of that, does this not movie not work as well? Probably. I mean, it, it definitely works better, I think, from having... Right. I don't know if you can accurately represent the, you know, do, does it seem silly, the the level of pettiness and, and lack of communication between the two mm -hmm. parties, you know, the two countries, the two governments, and how much that would affect something like that, you know, where it, like, like this thing that makes the most sense and would benefit humanity, you know, go, doing doing this joining forces to un uncover you know the one of mm. one of the greatest mysteries that we've come across you know right. like, oh, no but we can't because there's a boat not where it's supposed to be you know in 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 the caribbean somewhere you know it's like what like <laughs> right you're gonna let like a, a stupid disagreement kind of interfere with this and that and, you know i'm not saying we're free and clear of that now but like that was certainly mm. like the height of it certainly is hard to capture um, mm -hmm. unless you were there. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe it, it might make it, I don't know. Is it more enjoyable if you don't have that baggage of walking in with it? And you can just, you know, appreciate it as, 
you know, part of the science fiction, essentially, that there's like, oh, yeah, there's yeah, right. There are these two warring empires, you know, it's like, you know, it's almost like I, I thought it, I mean, I liked, you know, in a purely dramatic sense, how it, it kept the stakes in space high. Yes, and right. A, the kind of nucleus of a really interesting science fiction idea of, well, I mean, it's been done in other places like the the last ship and uh, to an extent, you know, silent running. But this, it, basically the shit's going down on Earth and we're stuck in space. What do we do? Right. Um, and we're right in the middle of this because, you know, we, we have representatives of the two nations that are about to blow up the Earth uh, <laughs> on one ship. So I liked I liked the the, the stakes and you know what that did, story wise, um, but you know it 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 has certainly now it has the danger of seeming almost quaint, right? Uh, yeah, to right. A modern, to a modern day audience who is dealing with a, you know, as Pete was saying, it's some something that, you know, similar, uh, global. Um, similar problems with global war and global terror that are just as dangerous, but yeah, reframed as the, you know, basically like uh, two countries that couldn't get along. Um, it does seem kind of weirdly, uh, weirdly antiquated in some ways. Yeah. No. But uh, I mean, that you know, that's. I guess that's a problem you can't get around in science fiction because there is so much of like projecting your historical context into whatever future you're you're imagining. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That it's you're always gonna you're always, you, you know that's why you, next generation you have a carpeted spaceship because right. yeah. <laughs> because you, why wouldn't you in you know in that 1987 exactly mm-hmm. you know well, why wouldn't the future look like this? Sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, uh, you know, we're, we're in space now. I guess one of the things I want to talk to both of you about, give it to me at least. This movie has a stellar cast. Yeah. <sighs> Couldn't believe it. Right? <laughs> I uh, There's a handful of things that I, I, since the last time I watched it, I, um, I was surprised to discover, rediscover, or, you know, things that meant more to me now. And I was like, oh, like, um, I, First and foremost, probably Helen Mirren. I was like, Helen Mirren? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I Um, think her first American movie role. Yeah, right? I'm pretty sure that's right. Well, I, you know, I didn't think there was much that could dispel the beauty of of Helen Mirren, but that haircut comes close. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you that. But, but, um, yeah, I just I love she's like this proto Bridget Nielsen from Rocky Four kind of uh, <laughs> vibe about about her. I, it's great, and some of my favorite scenes are between her and Shida. I think I I would you know I would um I would teach the the Kentucky Bourbon scene in film school as to how to do right. dialogue between <laughs> you know cultures that don't understand each other. Right, it's it, it's it's gorgeous stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And you know, and, and not, great things of uh, you know pot- potentially distasteful things like having you know a human version of Hal, uh, which seems like a very a bad sequel idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like, what if we made Hal a human? 
uh, what if we saw the guy who invented Hal? Right. And uh, but it, the fact that it's Bob Balaban takes you know the bad taste out of your mouth because you're like, yeah, right? that's, that's kind of what it would. Be. And just the way that his character, you know, the arc his character has through the movie, fascinated me. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of you know when you first see him go into space, you think. This guy is getting, you know, he's getting an early rap time when he's going to die on his first mission. And then for him to sort of come out on top as the most sophisticated astronaut in the American team was (laughs) was lovely to behold for me. Well, I think it says something to the strength of the actors, specifically him, that he can bring such emotional weight to that last scene. I mean, that's skipping ahead a bit, but I mean, he's bringing it. As he's yeah. talking to nobody, <laughs> <laughs> and it, I, I, I really, I like the way that you know he and Lithgow are sort of introduced as you know why would you bring these guys into space, right? Like it seems like right. the worst possible idea, and that's and the fact that that turns out to be only true for one of them, I think is really great character writing. It's like one of them will grow into something, but let's let's be real, not <laughs> both both of them are not gonna you know end up being Neil Armstrong here. <laughs> Right. <laughs> One of them has the capacity for this. The other is 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 just gonna be a bad choice. You know, he's the guy who knows the thing, so he gets to go to the ship. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> well, and, and he does by bringing kind of an element of, you know, there's a certain. I don't want to say, you know, creepiness, but you have a level of, you know, like you. He, he's very. Uh, passionate about and you know you see him kind of only interacting with you know computers at first and and yeah um and you know essentially you know it's painting it in this way that it's like oh he's you know where his allegiances are essentially that he's mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. you know again like you said a human how like he's dedicated to the this kind of yeah he feels you know, like ai himself yeah and and so then that kind of sets up like this whole time that you have a little bit of this like oh is he going to betray everybody or is this going to be like a yeah and i'm i'm always really relieved when a trope like that doesn't manifest yes uh, in in you know i i'm not saying it can't be well done a lot of times it is well done but it's often like like getting this like oh, i see where this is going and it's like oh no it's not it wasn't okay <laughs> like i like that I'm, I'm glad that that wasn't you know that was played with a little bit and then kind of diffused and he ends up kind of doing you know not not out of his character within the within the established you know scope of his character also ends up say essentially saving everybody and kind of you know working, by standing on his it. principles and yeah. Yeah. keeping his own morality his own moral compass yeah and and like there are no real villains in this movie other than no. you know, bureaucracy which is which is great like I, I i love that it's not you know it was like oh we don't trust each other and then we're going to and then somebody you know betrays the trust it's just like oh no we're 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 working through this and it's a very uh you know uh almost like a like a star trek like a roddenberry-esque kind of yeah. uh, you know <laughs> yeah right um message. but but starting but i guess starting with Starting with conflict and then that conflict being resolved, you know, which is the 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 trick that Roddenberry never really learned right. before, you know, before his passing, um, at least dramatically. And I really appreciated that too. Just just the you know the 
for me, you know, 2001 has a great deal of humanity, but it, it's it's historical, it's allegorical, it's scientific. And with this with this movie, the humanity is all in the characters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how they develop and how they grow, how they learn to relate to each other. Um, I think I think it's, it's beautifully done. I find it very moving. I think like um, uh, I just. I want to piggyback on that because I spoke when we first started about how much I loved this movie when I was a kid. And I, it was kind of a trip to watch it again. It's been so long since I've seen it. And I realized, I don't know, all the things that I took away from this movie as a kid, um, whether it was big or small, like in small increments or big increments, when, when they're about to do the... Uh, the air breaking and the Russian woman comes into his yeah. thing yeah. and, you know, they're holding each other and he buckles her up and then she kisses him on the cheek. And the look on his face after that yeah. to me is like I've remembered that look as a moment of acting my whole life. Yeah. And it, it I just remember that speaking to me as a kid about uh, platonic relationships. Yes. Mm. It's so interesting you brought that up, Mike, because. Um, it made me think that in the same way that Dr. Strangelove is a comedic version of Failsafe, mm -hmm. that this is kind of like the straight version of Moonraker. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like all the same kind of, all the same kind of beats. 43 minutes, done everyone. Done without, you know, sexual molestation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then double, uh, sexual molestation and double entendres taken out of it. Um, I loved, you know, we get the, you know, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir, but uh, there's no right. actual sex going on just there. Just, just as you say, platonic yeah, which, uh, friendship. Which is another relief. Again, that, that like, oh, yeah. oh this exactly, isn't, right. This isn't a trope that's going to unfold, that they're going to have this thing, and it's not going to, I mean, maybe, you know, I, I haven't read the, I've read the, the book for 2001, I haven't read 2010. Maybe that develops more. Maybe there is a little subplot of him being, you know, them having a, possible romantic encounter but i love that that's just at least on you know within the what's on screen it's just like okay well there's some crazy stuff going on and and they need comfort and i'm and scared just gonna yeah they're right. just gonna be you know there's that level of intimacy purely in you know crisis bonding and then it's over like you yeah. know okay like now we're gonna go about our business and that's uh i'm glad that it didn't unfold into stuff especially with the you know there's the uh, both somehow at once both subtle and heavy-handed that uh, as that's happening the family portrait slams against the wall you know behind mm -hmm. him yeah um, yeah and it's like oh uh oh and but, it's not to say there aren't other 80s things going on but they yeah. also reference it because he, he is he like in reality Scheider is a good 25 years older than his wife in this movie mm. in reality but he also mentions that in this movie when he's describing her in the Kentucky scene Tom he they're asking each other yeah. about their families with him and Helen Mirren, and he says she's young and smart, and you know. So there's a reference to that, and for some That's reason, I kinda, it I, felt I, I, motivated. Yeah, you know, narratively, and you you kind of expect something to develop with him and Helen Mirren, and and something it, does, it, but it's like respect and it's friendship. Cross right. Yeah, it's, it's like cross cultural. Yeah understanding and but it, it's a smart enough screenplay that it, it you know it, it it can see that there's an opportunity to take the wrong road and 
it kind of wants the the viewer to know that it that I'm that it's not going there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. That's that's like a hard screenplay trick to pull off. But I think I think that's kind of what the family. I mean, maybe that was a directorial choice, but the the family portrait and and uh, uh, there's there's a moment with Helen Mirren after that as well, which makes me think: Is he just gonna treat space as Vegas <laughs> and <laughs> right. say, "Well, it didn't count. Yeah. Zero gravity doesn't count." Happened you know, space. yeah. But uh, as 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 Pete said, it's a relief that we don't go down those roads. But they're very clearly marked um, rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in you know, in the in the movie itself, it just it just kind of decides that the movie's about something else for all for the better i think yeah interesting speaking of uh of uh i've totally have no clue what the character's name is but that the other russian the the other cosmonaut who uh max no no the 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 woman who who hops in uh oh yeah pod with him yeah uh, Actually, she's got a fascinating background that I didn't even realize. I was just like, oh, it's her deal. And I looked her up, and she was, you know, uh, mostly known as a musician. She's she's passed away mm. now, but she was like, you know, she was basically in the the scene in the crew that eventually kind of became the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, and was... <laughs> Whoa! Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really odd, interesting, and she had, a, you know, a, a successful career for a while as a, as a musician and, and stuff, and then... Uh, was not expecting that. And I was like, what's her deal? Why wasn't she in more stuff? Oh, she went and did other things and was successful at that. But And um, I, yeah, I, I only found out retrospectively that uh, Sal... Yeah. Uh, Candace Bergen. Was uh, Candace Bergen. Yeah. I, I <laughs> literally yeah. only upon, you know, look, looking at the Wikipedia for this, uh, to do this episode, I was like, oh, no way. Yeah. I discovered that for this viewing as well. And, and you know we didn't we didn't really mention Sal and to be fair it doesn't really go anywhere but um, classic sequel inversion there oh yeah for Sal right um, <laughs> that's one of the moments where you know I'm so, again it's so like it's I'm glad uh, I'm glad we have it in the movie I like the moment but uh, and the, we the started developing switch. Pete our own language for for movies that's a what we call an imbass, it must be a sequel. Yeah, it, it must be a sequel because we have a number of them. Right. Uh, this movie has a number of them. Yeah. The se- the sequel inversion and the uh, the recap montage. Right. Um. Not to mention the mini, you know, the 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 obligatory mini montage of uh, Roy Scheider training for space. Training. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, Just to good. remind you that you're watching an 80s movie in case you forgot. Exactly. Yeah. A little bit of 80s has to seep in. We need a training montage there. But again, a really low key montage. But to- yeah, exactly. That, that fits the tone of the movie. I, I think this, this movie plays to lots of cliches, but never falls victim to them. I love it. And it, it makes sense that they're like, all right, well, here, here's, you know, essentially a, a scientist who then was a teacher, but he's going to go into space, so he's going to need to spend some time getting into shape because it's you know yeah. physically demanding. So it's like, all right, well, that makes sense. Um, and I mean, Mike and I have covered uh, the Jaws series on the show, mm. and I don't know. I I was probably I don't probably more than most people because it's you know we've analyzed Jaws two. <laughs> oh, sure. But the the fact <laughs> the fact this. Uh, this feels to me it, like a more successful version of what Jaws 2 was trying to do and with Roy Scheider. 
Well, uh, uh, not to go completely off track, but my uh, my friend Rich and I, but we came up with this independently, and now since then we've we've talked about one day maybe we'll we'll make this happen. But Jaws two, the re the way the the ways that that fails is that there should not have been a shark in Jaws two. Jaws two should have been completely. Roy Scheider, you know, Brody being completely gun shy after the first one and just being like, shark, shark. And there's no shark ever. And he's just freaking out about it the whole time. <laughs> That's and great. It, and there really isn't one up. And you can you can kind of see just use the same exact scene. We're, we're yeah. trying to do a cut of it. But, it, you know, figuring out what that would also to lead to his heart it. attack for Jaws the Revenge. Exactly. <laughs> there <you go. laughs> That's amazing. All that, right. That's so. Yeah. That's and, and and you know he does his classic, uh, his classic um, chewing on the end of his glasses, mm. which I know will annoy Mike's, my um, other partner, Mike's other podcasting partner, <laughs> uh, Lady Chew on the How Dare You podcast has already pointed that out in relation to Roy Scheider as a <laughs> unacceptable. Um, yeah, that was my first thought. By the way, Mike, I thought she was gonna hate that. <laughs> I'll let her know. But it's clearly something that Roy Scheider likes to do in movies. That's amazing. And, you know, it's his mouth, it's his ears. <laughs> Go for it. His choice. <laughs> All right, we'll take another break, everyone, and then we'll come back and we'll finish up with 2010 right after this. Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out 2 a T Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. 2 a T Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. We're here talking, of course, about 2010, the 1984 film. All right, gents. Where do we go from here? I, one of the things I wanted to talk about was, like, there are some, for the 1980s, 1984, there are some great fucking effects in this movie. I mean, this movie looks good. Yeah. Yeah, I was really ex- mm-hmm. expecting it to look dated when I went back to, you know, more uh, weirdly, just because of the way that things progress. You know, the effects from the 80s right. look worse, well, worse, quote unquote, look more dated than a lot of the things from before that like like uh, you know, <laughs> that's right yeah 2000 everything was dated compared to 2001 because it was filmed you know in space in the future but um you know I, I was expecting it to be more dead expecting to see you know the, the kind of 
you know, the right. green screen mm-hmm. bleed through a little bit more, see more matte lines than I did. And I was like, yeah, oh, I was no, particularly impressed great. about how like, well integrated the bodies were it, when they were floating in space. I mean, that's usually the downfall of a lot of movies around yeah. this period yeah. that um, you just can't, it just doesn't look like it's in the same place. And I thought they pulled it off really well. The only thing I noticed was when lasers or flames were involved, it started to get a little, uh, a little difficult. But that was, but that was it. And I yeah. love the stop motion balloon. I marked that as a as a real kind of yeah. high point, high effects point of that period in cinema. You know, having never seen it before, I was. I was just bowled over. I thought, yeah, final, you know, it's like a, an inflating balloon in, so, in stop motion is just like the perfect marriage of style and content <laughs> on screen. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I myself, some of those shots of the, you know, getting into yeah. orbit. Yeah. You know, and there's plenty of like close up, hey, fiery ball shots, you know, the money shots for a science yeah. fiction movie. But I dig those far away shots where, Mm -hmm. you know, you just see the flames creeping along and all the astral, you know, astrological bodies in the background or foreground or whatever. I thought all of that just looked amazing. Yeah. Yeah, those those uh, again, it made me maybe it's because I have it on the brain. It did make me Mm -hmm. think a little bit of uh, Galileo seven and Star Trek where they're, they're, you know, burning the fuel and making that kind Mm -hmm. of streak across the sky. And I was like, Oh, I like that. I also like like the uh, lines, but when, when, you know, when you have uh, uh, Balaban and and Lithgow, when they wake up, Balaban has, you know, how was the arrow breaking? And he goes, well, it worked. We're here. Oh, I wish I could have seen that. Well, I wish I could have slept through it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's. I really liked. Uh, you know, speaking yeah. speaking of other science fiction properties, I think one of the things that, that this movie gets gets the balance right on among so many things is uh, hypersleep as a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I've I've always thought. You know, when it turns up mm-hmm. in you know the Aliens franchise or Planet of the Apes, you know, it's like they wake up too quickly. Like hypersleep is effectively you put your whatever the technology around it is the sciences you're putting yourself in a coma, mm-hmm. right? You should probably not be be able to stand, and you probably shouldn't be like alert right away. Um, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly, exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. But in most movies, you just kind of yeah. stretch it out and you're ready for action. And I loved here that you know we had a comatose Roy Scheider for a little bit, and and just you know how awful Lithgow and Balaban look when they come out of the hypersleep. I really like that sort of detail. And I guess that goes back to, you know, hard science fiction as well. Well, there's even detail in the dialogue. I love, you know, how do you feel? And and Scheider says, shaky, hungry, I think. (laughs) Yes, right. It's great. It is. There's a lot of talk about food in this movie. Go ahead. There's a a lot of food and drink in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Like conversations about bourbon, hot dogs, and yeah. mustard. I greatly appreciate any conversations about hot dogs. Yeah. Easy as pie, piece of cake. <laughs> well, that came up in the, um, I don't remember where I was reading it, but the uh, the, the kind of, you know, incorrect uh, predictions, the hot dog thing. Yeah, both, are both gone. The Astrodome <laughs> yeah, exactly. and the original Yankee Stadium are no longer... 
Yeah. I mean, so essentially, you, you that, I guess that's, that's what like speculative science fiction is. It's like you throw enough at the wall, some of it's going to stick. But the stuff that doesn't stick uh, looks pretty egregious in retrospect. Right. right. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, yeah, I suppose like the... Although I, I do... I began to feel once we were in space that we ne- never should have left space. <laughs> that's my big problem with this movie when we go back to earth for fairly tenuous reasons i mean right uh i suppose i don't know what what does everyone feel about the whole dave bowman subplot here maybe that's part of the problem okay me i don't don't know what what do we think about that yeah i mean it's kind of the kind of thing that works in the book i'm sure a lot better than than it's probably a combination of it's in the book and well, there's a lot of that. We got yeah, your delay here. <laughs> Let's give him a little bit more to do than just kind of you know showing up and rasping for one or two scenes. Um. Yeah, I it it, it was definitely mm-hmm. jarring each time that it went back because they weren't even back. But to they're back. still it fairly close together too, which is a little like weird. Version back to back. But, yeah. Um, maybe even you know make them further apart. I also either one. I I was a little put off by how much product placement there was in those scenes as well, because then I just thought, well, that's obviously a big fact. You know, that's Mm. that's a big factor of they got to get their they got to get their Pan Am dollars and they got to get their you know. So it's hard to do that in the depths of space. (laughs) Do you like one more than the other, either of you? Of the two scenes, the, yeah. the two the two uh, Dave visitations, I I'm the visiting his mom felt a little too kind of uh, I don't know like cocoon batteries not included. I was just like gonna that. say yeah, cocoon. Right. Yeah. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> it felt a little bit too much on that end. Whereas the the him visiting his wife had almost like a like a horror movie vibe to it like a low that's key the, that's of, the yeah. thing that makes me like that scene a lot is that it yeah. has that vibe and uh i don't know the actor's name or whatever the the wife's name is but she well, was great you know you know who it is that's the that's the weird part is uh it's zoe deschanel's mom yeah it's mary joe I'm deschanel. just seeing that now mary wow. deschanel yeah which i uh, was another thing that uh, again you know it's not like i'm rediscovering some of this stuff i just wouldn't have you know when i was a kid you wouldn't have cared, right? There was no Zoe Deschanel, so who right. knows who her mom was? And also, like, you know, I wouldn't have known who Candace Bergen was. Oh, so I, I probably may have. My parents might have, but um, so it's weird to go back and watch it now and be like, oh, because huh. you see it in the right. She, she makes cool. it even to the opening credits where you're just like Deschanel. I wonder if that's and you look it up and there she goes. <laughs> yeah, um, and she was in the right stuff. Yeah, yeah, she play, was again playing like an astronaut's wife. That's her. I guess she got typecast. Typecast. <laughs> As did Roy, Roy Scheider with stressed out dinner interplay with a child. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's exactly. his. He has <laughs> to do that in every thing. movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, go ahead, Pete. Yeah, but overall, I don't. I don't think both were necessary. Mm. I do like that. I guess yeah. If you, I guess maybe just cut the mom thing. Yeah, maybe that it is, is, that just is one where of those... you see the the Time magazine, but still, right? Yeah, I and mean, it may just that... be. 
Sorry, Tom. Go ahead. No, well, I, I mean, I I felt that the 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 Dave Bowman, you know, whatever form we saw him in, there was more of a desire to reenact scenes from the original movie. Yeah, and that that was the main purpose behind them. Um, I I like the fact that it it brings back some of the am, the ambiguity of the original, because you know it, it's easy to. It's it's weird, you know, when you think about two thousand and one, I don't even think that anything happened at the end of it. It's not that I, I, I think, oh what happened? I think, well, nothing kinda happened. Space hotel. Right, right. <laughs> um and I'm content with that, but you know, I think a a lot of people wouldn't be, and if you look at the reviews of this online, there's a lot of people who say, Finally, we had a movie that explained what happened in and it's like, Well, that's not the way I'm looking at it. Well, but, but there's I'm, the I'm other certainly side... glad that Dave Bowman comes in and says, I don't know who I am, I don't right. know what's going on. <laughs> well, and I one of the, my favorite lines in this whole movie is when Hal is talking to Floyd to Roy Scheider and he's te- he's giving them a message that they have to leave in two days and there's this whole back and forth of who's sending it I don't know and going back and forth and then all of a sudden you get the line I was David Bowman right. yeah what a great fucking line I just love that yeah and you, yeah and that's another one where it plays like a little bit Again, not a horror, not quite a horror scene, but like the way that it's it's suspenseful and and it, yeah, you know. he can ratchet up some some tension in this movie. Yeah, that scene and then the very last scene is edge of the of your seat stuff, waiting for a computer to decide. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really. I did did uh, speaking of, you know speak uh, the balance. It's interesting the balance in this movie between explaining and over explaining. How how did we all feel about? Yeah, the, um, yeah, that was one of my questions too. How you know finding out why Hal did what he did, which again is not a question that ever entered into my mind. Right, right. Um, that there were reasons beyond malfunction that he did what he did. Well, and this is part of a rather kind of famous. Roger, I say he. Yeah, right. Ro- <laughs> it's a computer, but right. you know what I mean. This is kind of a part of a famous Roger Ebert review of this movie where he ended up giving it, I think, three out of four stars. He said on its own, this movie is very good, but he kind of he loves sort of the impressionistic feel of 2001 and the, you know, how much as an audience member you're expected to bring to it. And it's subconscious and emotional and all of that. And he sort of lamented that this movie just says so bluntly gives a reason why Hal did what he did. Right. Hal was told to lie. He didn't know how to do that. So, you know, he killed a bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> Done end of story. Yeah. But I... to me, it's like it's the essential difference between that movie and this movie. Yeah. I think this yeah. movie had to answer that question by virtue of having this movie. Right. And it's not a disappointing right. answer to me. No, no, it I, is to me. I, I, is I, it? I would, I would, I. Well, I, I didn't. If the, as soon as it goes down the government conspiracy road, I thought, okay, I don't, I don't like that. Um, I don't mind the. Why fact not that though? Just because it, we've been there before. I just, I, I, no, it's I just familiar? think it's. I just don't buy it. I don't buy the government conspiracy element, and I don't. I think that's just retconning. I, I didn't take it as much of. 
a conspiracy as just kind of a bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, chain of right? Stuff, me too. You know? okay. well, it wasn't like oh, we're we're they're not necessarily you know conspiring to keep a secret. It's just like all right, well, let me add in the. We're covering know, some... all our bases, but we're covering each base with something different. <laughs> right. And part A doesn't know what part B is doing, not right. because they're necessarily keeping it secret, but because it's you know. Yeah. Uh, different different plans with different intention intentions. Uh, I, I, yeah. Again, if, if if you, I can't think of what would have been better for that. If you like you said, if you're going to make this movie at all, then that's a hmm. intriguing. You know, that's kind of the the crux of it is them getting there to find out what went wrong essentially in there. Yeah, like, exactly. Right. Just like all right. Oh, it's it, it was a you know a bug. It was a it was a malfunction. You know that that. Would have been fine too, I guess. But I, I like that. Then that idea of you know that kind of cements Chandra's kind of connection with Hal, and then kind of that. I think that helps us get to that that scene of him talking Hal through the decision at the end too. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's also it's also a very peculiar sequel trope of you know having the villain return in the sequel as a hero, right? Which yeah. is something we see again. You know, t- the one that's jumping out to me is Terminator Two, mm-hmm. but there are other examples. You know, Fast and Furious has pulled that trick a few times. Back and as forth well. several times. Back yeah. and forth several times, right. just to keep it interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, I and, and that—that's what it seemed like. You know, and and there is that. Uh, you know, many people have said it over the years that that they just loved Hal, despite what he was doing in the frame of the movie. Which is, you know, murder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Plain and simple. They're like, I love this guy. You know, he's he's so cool. <laughs> so I I wonder if there's a consciousness to sort of bring him back in a more positive light. Right. Well, it wasn't his fault. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It right. was the government. Yeah. It's your fault. It was Scheider. <laughs> um, which again, I I'm not saying that as a negative thing, but it's just interesting that this that idea comes comes back like. The more you're with a character over a certain number of films, the more likely are they are to come out, um, uh, in a, in a more positive light. And you know it's the same with long form television as well. You know that Deadwood taking Swearingen from the worst guy in the world to the mm-hmm. worst guy in the world that you also like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I much would, I I would rather. In terms of over-explaining things, I thought maybe you were going to talk about the uh, uh, the voiceover, which which I, I have that note too. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was yeah. that was heavy. I feel like that's purely okay. People didn't get two thousand one, so let's make sure we explain everything <laughs> right. that, and like have it. And I I really don't uh, ac- acoustically. I I have pro- some problems with this movie. I don't I don't love the score at all. <laughs> Um, oh, that's interesting. But David, also, David Shire, right? Yeah, Isn't it is. That? Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I feel like that just stumbles a couple of times, and also the 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 way that those kind of you know messages home have this like uh, reverb kind of you know tin can quality to them a little, mm-hmm. a little bit. I like that. A, I, I think the voiceover is largely unnecessary. Like f- yeah. for for a lot of it, it's like okay. Yeah, I, I know why you're going there, but I, I get it that you're trying to appeal to, trying to undo, not make the quote-unquote mistakes. You call it a mistake, I call it yeah, right, right. from the yeah. first movie. <laughs> yeah, but the mistakes also, that aren't mistakes. Right. Uh, and you're trying to appeal to everybody, make sure everybody's on board. I get it, but I, just the way they were done feel feel extra. 
you know. Yeah, there, there are mom- the moments well, like and that also when it's... it crosses over into pandering, I think, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Like, what, that, that cut to where I think it might even be, it might even almost ruin your favorite moment, Mike, where it says, you know, I was Dave Bowman, and there's a cut to, like, the, the shot of the baby. As yeah. in, it's like, oh, like, That's... he's been re... You know, yeah. it's like, oh, he's been reborn through the cycle. It's like, yeah, but I like that more as an image than a, you know, than a set, like, life cycle. Well, and if you'll notice, that is the, that is visually the most uneven part of this movie, hmm. is that exact moment. You have a great but, reaction shot from Scheider seeing... Is there anything, is there anything... Right, seeing the star baby. That else that exists. Right. <laughs> but of course, the very next shot is it being gone without a reaction mm. shot to that. Right. And so it... Just makes it seem like, oh, I get it. He's This is like a behind-the-scenes shot almost. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's just been right. standing here talking to nothing this whole time, waiting for the effects to be added. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even that that sequence, I I don't know, it bothered me a little bit because it doesn't progress chronologically through Dave's life cycle yeah. there either. It's like here's no. astronaut Goes back Dave. And forth. Oh, here's old man Dave. Here's astronaut Dave again. Oh, here's like very old man. Here's Dave. really old man. Yeah. Um. So I, I yeah, he's basically standing there saying Kubrick didn't write me an ending, so this right. is all you got. This is what you get. <laughs> it's like remember this part, huh? Huh? Remember? Okay. Right. See you later. Like. I'm a baby now. Here I go. Which you know, it's like it's ironic that the in in a much more uh, contrived, I think, mercenary way, this movie ends on a note of ambiguity, but in a way that suggests a sequel. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not actually ambiguity. It's just like we want a sequel, so we're going to put up an image that will hope will be explained in the next one. But and I don't, you know, I don't think that's what two thousand and one was going for, <laughs> especially not in nineteen sixty-eight. Uh, Taxi eight, yeah. It wasn't like, yeah. We definitely want a sequel to this, although in the same way that this movie was. That just made me think about the so the. I mentioned that it, it beat for the Yugo. It beat out Dune, which ends with like a planet kind of being reborn and and mm. new, and Star Trek three, which ends with a planet being yeah. reborn and. That's right. I oh, know that was two. I guess the end of. All right. So, I was trying to tie it. I was like, wait, was this a theme? Was this something we were worried about? Is is you know kind of well, Sp- Spock. I, I would I would call Spock a planet at that point. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right. Exactly. He, he is <laughs> from that point onwards. He is both Spock and Genesis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's Spock Genesis. There you go. The uh, um, famous uh, video game console. Of the nineties. <laughs> well, I mean, we're basically at the end here, boys. So let me ask you this final question. What do we think of Jupiter becoming the second sun and the monolith is the giver of life and also the, you know, taker of life? I, you know, if it was most other people, I would think it's kind of dumb. But I'm like, well, I'm going to see Clark and he knows more about this kind of thing than I do. So, right, right. All right. I guess so. That's fascinating. That's interesting. I mean, I do yeah. have questions about well, what is 
how does that affect us now? You know, where he's. I've had all kinds of those same questions, and I went on deep dives. Like I, you know, because I remember asking my seventh grade science teacher. I I remember asking why would a spaceship near uh, Io be covered in sulfur? Right. And he's like, I don't know. And so he came back and he said, actually, Io has a lot of volcanoes, so that might be true. And then I just on this watching, I started doing deep dives about uh, if Jupiter became a sun. And it turns out it wouldn't affect us all that much. Hmm. There'd be some orbital things where we'd be a little hotter than normal on on when we get close to Jupiter. But that doesn't have, you know, it's not happening all the time and wouldn't wouldn't be terrible for us. Like we can survive with Jupiter as a sun. Yeah, they say something about. You know, like, oh, children now will grow up like never having known night or something like that. I'm like, whoa, whoa, don't we need that? Like, are... <laughs> that's the one okay? thing like, I wonder about because that of... sounds like a horror film. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what he says is they'll never know a sky without two suns. Right. But the thing that I kept wondering was, would we ever have night? I, I like night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it. Yeah, I, I, I mean. You you've both thought about the the science of it. None of that even. I mean, even though you know, I, I did the same thing that Pete did. I was like, Arthur C. Clarke's got me on that one. Yeah, I'm not going to question <laughs> that aspect of it. But it 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 brought in it brought into focus something that I've been thinking for the that I was thinking for the entire movie, in imagistically going back to Star Wars with the two sons. Uh, it just reminded me that this, because this movie is a sequel to 2001, I think it feels like it has carte blanche to rip off everything, every science fiction image from every movie since. Because it, you know, it has deniability. It can go, you know, we're a sequel to 2001. Aliens took that from 2001, so we can use whatever's in... Well, no, Aliens hasn't happened yet, but Alien. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And there were so many, so many moments like that where I thought that, you know, because, because this is, this predates so many, uh, of the movies that it uses imagery from, that it just has this sense of entitlement. And I think that's, you know, there's so so much in the design of the spaceship that reminds me of the Nostromo, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, so so many other instances where you know I'm thinking of star wars or the star trek movies and then i'm like yeah but it all goes back to 2001 so right is it really stealing or is it just reclaiming something uh but then you know on on the other side of that i think i can see the the influence of this on things that happen in aliens and alien 3 um so i think you know i, I don't obviously not not a it's not a dislike movie but it's not particularly high regarded science fiction movie but i could definitely see where james cameron you know took some things and yeah uh it, it has been it has been kind of influential in a in a secretive way backdoor <laughs> back yeah backdoor backdoor influence for for yeah. a few for, um a few science fiction movies since unless you know i think just some people that made some of our other favorite movies really liked this movie that's the feeling i get yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely i mean not narratively but you can totally as far as look and feel of this type of thing goes you can totally see the kind of 
stepping stones but from alien to this to aliens it's like oh yeah yeah this happened in between there look at the you know the way they have the crew gathered around the table and that kind of a thing it's like oh yeah yeah, yeah this is this is totally within that that vibe so i thought i i mean so while while you know the science of it was is was and is fascinating uh just the fact that the fact that it ended with the image of two sons and the kind of audacity of that but then <laughs> yeah. remembering that this is a sequel to 2001 so everything that happened in between is already stealing from 2001 <laughs> so what's the difference right yeah. i like that i i just <laughs> i thought it was a great um great piece of intertextuality it would be neat to take that whole and you know there's the i don't know if you guys have ever taken the uh the end of of 2001 and if you put uh uh the pink floyd song echoes with it there's some there's some synchronicities there that make it fun to do not saying it was intentional there's a whole conspiracy theory that says it was intentional and all this other stuff but um but it would be fun to take uh the kind of you know the denouement kind of post jupiter part of this movie and mix it with you know play maybe that uh you know the staring at the French horns, Luke with the two sons. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. from Star Wars, as they go through this montage of everybody looking at two sons now. Yeah, that's I, delicious. I, I mean, you know, as Pete said that with with it, you know, that it's equal parts Kubrick and Spielberg. Or that this movie kind of feels that way. Uh, I thought that the the whole sort of message of peace, denouement. You know, I, it felt like kind of 80s Spielbergian powdered sugar put mm-hmm. over what is in other ways quite a rugged space movie. Right. Um, that, you know, it got very sentimental very fast. I don't think that's a bad thing. And obviously, like, the emotion of the characters really helps with that transition. Right. Like, you know, um, Bob Alabama breaking into, into tears. And so it's earned to a certain extent. But... It wasn't necessary. I mean, and again, I'm not thinking. You know, I'm not watching this in the mid '80s, where it would have seemed more powerful and urgent and relevant to say these things. <laughs> so, but it did. It did sort of. You know, it, it put a gloss over the movie that just reminded me of, you know, some of Spielberg's movies and and how he can kind of lurch into the sentimental very quickly. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't how I saw things wrapping up. Uh, oh, that's twenty minute. I looked at the clock, it was 20 minutes to go. I was like, I don't know how we're wrapping this up. Mm. <laughs> so I guess in a way, this is as good a way as any. And maybe it made, you know, maybe Reagan watched it. And, you know, it wasn't just Steve Gutenberg <laughs> that made him end the Cold War. It was this. I don't know. But um, watching it now, it's sort of like, it feels like you're, you've you've sort of slapped on something to end the movie doesn't necessarily work with the rest of the movie but uh so that's how that's how i felt about it what well, it does lead you to kind of if not crave at least be interested in a third movie which apparently they've talked about yeah. every once in yeah, a while right they're, they're, they're like oh yeah one day we'll do odyssey 3 which the year is it 20 2061 2061 so what is that that's i'm pretty sure 50 years after mm, 2010. Yeah, 51. So if this is, we should make that in or 41. or something. 2030. I, I just lost my math. 2035, we should make 2000. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. 
trying to figure out what we could do to make the uh... and, and again i thought it was a great sequel moment to you know just up the ante we had the, with the multiple monoliths that you know it's like more monoliths than you've ever seen and now they fly <laughs> right right um it's like such a sequel such a sequel image yeah flying a, a, essentially out of what looks a little bit like a death star if you look if you squint a little bit yeah yeah right yeah, and again you know they they should they they, yeah. they feel like they own those images because yeah. of 2001 so <laughs> it's fine and yeah i well, don't know what's the, go, they going were on at lake monolith they were absolutely intent on telling us uh why my god they, it's full of stars or how right mhm yeah right well which was in the book of 2001 but not okay in the yeah. movie so then to bring that back and make that the kind of central thread of of this movie is interesting because it is um you know i i'm i would never i would never think to second guess jupiter and beyond the infinite it's one of my favorite things but like that to have that <laughs> end without you know to have the movie work the way it does doesn't lead into the narrative flow the way the book might so yeah if you're gonna right. if you're gonna want to turn this into a thing that you're gonna revisit then throwing that little tidbit of of you know this mystery you're like oh my god it's full of stars like that what does mm -hmm. that mean and then it gives you this fuel to do it but i like the i really do appreciate the way that it was handled in the, in the movie but i understand then bringing it back for this gives you that kind of you know the the People on Earth in the movie didn't see Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. They just lost track of Dave, and you know, That's yeah, right. right. Yeah. So yeah. They, they don't have the same weirdness that we have. So to, for them to get that, it kind of gives them that little mystery to solve. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, rest assured, we're probably going to run a little long this episode. Let's let's take one more break, and then we'll come back and we'll finish up, truly finish up, with 2010, the year we make contact right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by the Sounds in Cinema podcast. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds in Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound-related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug the Dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. All right. I agree. Anything else? Anybody needs uh, to get off their chest about 2010, the year we make contact? I, well, you know what, I, you know what I'm going to say? Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask for a credit check. Of course. What was I thinking? Uh, Pete, I like to look. I like to watch credits. Sure. Uh, as a, oh, what, who am I, I'm talking to the host of Star Wars Minute. Why am I even? Doing this? It's probably where I got it from. Um, uh, 
Yeah, I just a visual futurist hmm. is probably the coolest credit that any <laughs> artist could receive. In my old work. job, who, who's yeah. uh, who's credited as visual futurist in this? Oh, I can't remember now. I I should have written that down, but I I love that term. Yeah, um, absolutely. And also, I've never seen a movie that gives special thanks in the credits to a very large array of telescopes. <laughs> right. They get their own thank you. And you God bless those telescopes. Oh, it's Sid Mead. I was going to say, what is it? Like, it's totally Sid Mead. That's the type of thing that yeah. he did. Um, perfect. Sid Mead, visual futurist. Um, yeah, I, I um, would love uh i've been spending i guess the last let's say 40 years trying to figure out how i can have dolphins in my home <laughs> i know right the dolphins we missed totally missed out the dolphins it, it turns out it's not really a thing that we're gonna have and that's fine i've, I've come to understand that it's not you know that it's not, it's not cool really fair to them yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um but i do like it, it does seem like they're not necessarily you know, the way that they, it's almost like the uh, sorry to keep going back to Star Trek, but the no. the Cetacean Institute where it's like, all right, there's the ocean and then there's like a little enclosure where they can come up to it. And it seems like maybe the dolphins here are somewhat free range that yeah. they just have a thing that they can come up into the house to get fed and they know that they'll get fed regularly. It's almost like putting out a bird feeder. Yeah, they just have a little pool that because you can hear the ocean sounds from their house. So I'm assuming that it's a it's not a containment unit. It's just a like a bird feeder essentially so that that's the, that's that's my new goal so an elaborate set of tunnels board. that lead to the ocean yeah it's like you know a <laughs> house just kind of you know one of those little house on stilts that leads out over the ocean but there's also a little you know uh portal that you can go through cool because my, my before before i'd seen this movie all i knew about it was uh i think it was on with Gawley and rust both matt Gurley, matt Gawley and paul rust talking about the thing they they remember about 2010 is the pet dolphins is that you can have dolphins in your home. Yeah. Right. So I was prepared for it to be like, you know, <laughs> a, a sort of in-room aquarium was what I was imagining. So I was I was pleasantly <laughs> surprised when even the, you know, even the fictional version of this had taken into account that that they need to retain some link uh to the wild i suppose probably the voyage home is also what i'm thinking about uh right you know and 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 you know in next generation aren't there dolphins on the enterprise or is it whales whales yeah no i mean in in next generation don't they mention that they have dolphins on board oh i don't know i don't remember There's some kind of sea life i think we never see them but you know obviously budget but I think Geordie a few times says to people coming on the ship, have you seen the dolphins? <laughs> oh, yeah, look at that. I don't remember that. That's apparently there were there were dolphins aboard the aboard the Enterprise D. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Geordie LaForge showed some of them to Par Lenore. Yeah, and apparently someone showed this movie to uh <laughs> to yeah, because of the next absolutely. generation. Uh so yeah, but I it's like a facet I, it's interesting that that moment is so central to this movie when it's not really central to this movie at all yeah but yeah it's things that people that people take away from it is one the thing i of... feel also that we haven't touched on that i'll just put out there john lithgow american treasure yeah that guy's fucking great love yeah. him. yeah such I... a great character for him too oh yeah uh the the most recent 
uh, th- th- this before this, the most recent thing that I encountered him in was I was listening. Well, I have been. I'm not done yet, but I've been listening with my kids to the Star Wars radio dramas, and uh, in the Empire Strikes Back radio drama, John Lithgow plays Yoda. So, <gasps> you nice. You're up wow. for a treat if you haven't heard those ever, because it's it's admirable what he's trying to do. It, it's a little <laughs> bit like 2010 itself in that it's like. He's got one foot in in kind of, you know, kind of slavish reproduction, you know, verisimilitude, but it also goes off a little bit every once in a while. And then you're like, hmm, he sounds more like kind of old Jewish Grover half the time. But uh, <laughs> old Jewish Grover. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the uh, thing. If, if you're doing Yoda and you're not Frank Oz, you will eventually sound like an old Jewish Grover. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's tough, but, he, you know, he does he does some interesting things. So. Worth Lovely, yeah. I think he's magnificent in this movie. Also, I I would speak up for, and this is a character that I was sure was gonna uh, die. Although I'm not actually sure if he did die, but he disappeared. Max, yeah, the cosmonaut. Oh, what's his name? What a lovable. Uh, Elia Baskin is just the utilitarian yeah. Russian man. Too good, too good for i was gonna say too good for this world but too good for this part of space yeah i knew he was gonna be gonna get lost or something was gonna happen yeah once once you have people be friends then you're like "Uh then you're doomed (laughs) so doomed yeah (laughs) he's like a red shirt but with personality (laughs) right (laughs) well pete we can't thank you enough for joining us this has been so much fun yeah, sure. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for letting me pick this movie because I'm happy that I got to revisit it. Oh yeah, I was so happy you picked this movie, and uh, I'm still a fan. Yeah, love this movie. Can you tell and our anything uh, we can uh, plug for you? Yeah, um, can, anything you're working on that you'd like uh, everybody to find? Um, well, you know, mainly it's Star Wars Minute. Uh, dot com and and A B C D T O S, um, which is our, my alphabetical. Uh, voyage, if you will, through Star Trek, the original series, right. with some friends of mine. Those are both um, kind of uh, um, slightly obsessive podcasts that I do. And uh, every once in a while, other projects pop up. PeteTheRetailer.com, I, I have, and I mainly just use it as a place to link to those two pages mm. and whatever other things come up. But uh, I would also speak up for um, uh, a completed run of Alphabetical, Oh, which yeah. I, I listened I listened to all of very recently um, alphabetical cataloging of of the Beatles the discography and mm-hmm. uh, um, it's just superb. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's my my. I'm not gonna say less popular because the people who like it definitely like it, but the you know the the movies by minutes kind of format took off. We have you know moviesbyminutes.com. There's there's um, all I think close to 200 different shows right now doing all kinds of different movies that some of which you've never heard of some of which you've heard of a lot um but the uh the going alphabetically through a band's catalog is is didn't quite catch on as much but i love the the that it's also a thing that people have been uh doing and it's it's a it's a fun thing to do and it's a fun thing to see but yeah so far i've Definitely. done the beatles and devo for that and that's you know, I, i'm not yeah, enough of that. a devo fan to do abc devo but so i'll have to <laughs> learn about i'll have to learn about devo first but you know these podcasts would make me want to do that it, for sure. yeah a few people are but it, it, it does um 
you know, interesting to see that people kind of going into it for the first time. We've had people kind of kind of watching along with us for for Star Trek going there like, all right, I'm not that familiar. You know, they might have been, you know, TNG fans or, or, you know, they know the movies, but they've never really watched much of the original series. And now they're going through with us, which is kind of a cloudy way to do it because you're like, all right, well, you're not getting the way why this is important yet. But <laughs> um, but it is, you know, it's fun to fun to do that with them and to have kind of a you know a tour guide with you so hopefully yeah and just i mean especially with 60s television to be to de- decode it in the way that in the way that um abcdtos does i think is i mean you know i i used to i used to teach film history and tv history and uh it's 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 not just a, a tour guide it's like a it's like a it's like a translator into in the past mm-hmm. in past yeah. media and it's uh um it, it it it's it will make a lot of people's enjoyment of those shows much more enjoyable <laughs> I, I hope so well what else have you got going on tom plug away um, oh yeah i just started a, a a new uh video podcast i guess you call it video youtube series uh, the james bond book club um and michael you were the first guest on on that was i ever yeah uh we discussed the james bond books over cocktails uh once a month um enough to get uh, drunk on i'll tell you yeah uh we did casino royale next up is uh it might be out by the time this is out the spy who loved me um and you know we'll we'll go around the We'll go around the houses uh, with regards to James Bond books. Um, not just the Fleming canon. We'll do continuation, uh, spin-offs, uh, books about everything. Um, I tried love to it. tried to read those just this past, I guess, the past summer. Not too long ago, I was like, oh, you know, I start Casino Royale. This is great. I, I, I like this one. I get it. It's fun. <laughs> and then just dove into. I, I bought a bunch of them. Uh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna dive right in. I'm gonna. These are fun reads. And I I made it at chapter five of uh, of Live and Let Die stopped me just because I'm like, okay, there's a little bit too much racism here. I need to take a breather. Right. Um, there's there's you know it's it's that there are some there are some texts in Western civilization that you know racism is almost stuck to them in a way that. Yeah. It's completely inextricable. I mean, live and let die is up there with birth of a nation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm, and and it was partly informed my decision not to go chronologically and to yeah. you know to sort of go thematically or just sort of randomly ping a book here whatever came to mind. Um, a big part of that was not having to do live and let die second. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, to sort of save that until you've built up some goodwill. Yeah. <laughs> well done. What about you, Mike? Any new projects on the horizon? I would just say, uh, please listen to the How Dare You podcast, where uh, me and Lady Chu battle a, a deliciously bad movie every week. And of course, because she's the movie novice, every five movies or so, it becomes How Dare She Not Have Seen This Movie. And I watch her make a good watch her watch a good movie. She has some <laughs> fascinating thoughts about the sting. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> particularly that she thought she written the Scott Joplin theme tune on her own. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I just I applaud the audacity of sort of saying, <laughs> "Didn't I make that up with you?" 
when we're off mic? Nope. <laughs> no, no, that's the theme tune of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it was it was that, and don't uh, stir coffee cups with your fork and lick them. <laughs> Choose hot takes. Yeah. All right, everyone, that's it for 2010, The Year We Make Contact, a movie we're all recommending, I assume. People should see this movie, should they not? I think so, yeah. If you're interested, if you're at all interested in it, then yes. Just to see that, and and if you're just interested in film history, you've got that uh, Diamond Jubilee opening that they haven't retfitted. Oh, yeah. Uh, The MGM... Uh, lion right. surrounded in diamonds. <laughs> Got to do it for that. Classic. <laughs> yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, for Pete the Retailer and Tom Stewart, I am Michael Schantz. We'll uh, be coming at you next time with another movie. At some point, Tom, you and I will have to do all the other 1984 single sequels, but that'll be for another so, time. Yeah. yeah. There's some doozies. <laughs> it's quite a year. But that's for another time, everyone. Stay tuned and take care. We'll be coming at you with another sequel next week. So long.